The following podcast is brought to you by Pathways Church. For more information, visit www.pathwayschurch.us. Thanks for joining us for this message from our weekend service. Every week we're hearing stories about how God is moving in people's lives. So if you have a story to share, email us at info at pathwayschurch.us. We'd love to hear from you about how God is working in your life. What's up, Pathways? How y'all doing? Good, good. Well, good morning to you. Good morning to you that are watching online. So glad that you guys are able to join us. I want to start our time together this morning uh, by giving you a punchline. And the punchline is this. Do these jeans make me look fat? Now, I know, husbands, you're thinking, that's not a punchline. That's a trap, bro. I know better. But I want you to park that punchline. Do these jeans make me look fat? We'll come back and visit that in a minute. Because for the last couple of weeks, we have been strolling through ancient Rome, looking at the book of Romans. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, and it's his longest letter that he ever wrote to a group of Christians that he'd actually never met. Now, a lot of the other books that Paul wrote were letters written to churches because he was trying to address some sort of, of church drama, some doctrinal issue, some argument that was raging in the early church. But the target of the book of Romans is a little bit different. He wrote the book of Romans to establish this kind of overarching, comprehensive capsule of what the gospel is, who's included in it, who's invited to the party, and probably more importantly, how does the gospel collide with the everyday life of Jesus' followers? When in Rome is the name of our series, and it comes from the common phrase, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. And that is a piece of advice that has been passed on for centuries, really, to give people a little bit of information to say, if you don't know where you are, then just pay attention to those around you. If you're in a culture and you don't know how to act or behave or how to eat, then just do what the people around you are doing to fit in. My wife and I recently took a trip to Tokyo, and uh, she's way smarter than me, so she had the common sense to look into some of the cultures and the things that are the normative for Tokyo. And I'm the kind of guy that, like, I can be a little loud, I can sing and dance and be a little goofy, and I love to eat all the time, so walking around with chips and doing that is like my normal thing. She's like, Gary, they don't do that. They're typically a little bit more quiet. You don't talk on your phone and watch videos on the subway. You don't chomp your Doritos while you're walking down the street. And sure enough, we get there, and she's right. It's the first time it's ever happened she's been. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, baby. Happy anniversary. Uh, No, she was right, and luckily, it probably saved me um, doing some things that maybe I should not have done because I was in Japan, and that's the culture. But when it comes to Paul's writing, he's not trying to say, hey, if you're a Jesus follower, Do what the Romans do. Here's how you can fit in. Paul is not mincing his words in Romans. He's actually telling them, because you are a Jesus follower, you're not supposed to fit in. Week one, he said, we're supposed to learn how to follow and to live differently, which is the the thrust of what this entire series has been about. So while Romans wasn't written to you and I, it's written for our benefit. And today we're going to wrap up the last part of chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, if you have U version, you have a device, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to live there uh, for a while. And the big idea for this morning, if you want to know where we're heading, is this. We can live free from fear because of his incredible love. You and I 
can live free from fear because of his incredible love. When you think of fear, a lot of times you hear people say the opposite of fear is faith, or they say uh, the opposite of fear is courage, or you see t-shirts that say faith over fear. But actually, 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. The Bible's telling us that the antidote to fear is not just powering up in faith, it's actually experiencing his perfect love because that is what's going to drive fear away. So as we got into this series, Pastor Ben and Pastor John did a great job kind of taking us into the culture the day that Paul was writing, what Rome was like. He gave, they gave us a snapshot of what it was like to be a first century Christian. Rome, if you don't know or you weren't here, Rome was the hub of the entire empire. It was the Washington, D.C., if you will, of what was happening. And much of the world at this point was ruled by Rome, from England to Africa, from Syria to Spain. Um, they say, historians say, one in every four human beings on the planet lived and died under Roman rule. They were massive. And they also highlighted a couple of pillars that Rome used to shape their culture, to emphasize the things that they thought were important. Those five pillars were language, education, religion, athletics, theater, and media. These were the things that Rome used to shape its culture and to export it to the rest of the world. And the first rule in Rome was this, there are no rules, except Submit to the emperor, pay your taxes. But when it came to everything else, it was kind of a free-for-all kind of culture. And I know that's really hard to imagine in our day, right? I mean, you really have to stretch and use your imagination to picture a culture that would be obsessed with athletics and sports. Or to, to think of a culture where the moral compass is really just defined by individuals and what they want to do. Or where there's different gods that can be worshipped to get what you want out of life. Like, can you imagine living there? If you need health in Roman culture, then you pray to this God. If you needed prosperity and money, then you pray to this God. If you needed success, then you pray to that God. So this is the culture Paul's writing to, and he doesn't tiptoe around these subjects when he writes the book of Roman. In fact, he deals with it head on, and sometimes he uses the language of the culture that everybody's familiar with to drive his point home about how we're to be different. So we're going to pick it up at verse 31, but before we do that, let's revisit the punchline. Do these jeans make me look fat? Can I give you the setup? Oh, thank you. The setup to the punchline, do these jeans make me look fat, is this. What did one DNA say to the other DNA? Do these jeans make me... Ah, uh, it's a groaner, dad joke, yeah. But... Now that you see how the word genes is spelled, it gives a little different context, right? Now that you see the setup for the joke, the punchline makes a little more sense, right? Right. So as we look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we're going to see Paul kind of giving us a hint on the same way that joke works. Romans 8, 31 says this, what then shall we say in response to these things? Like that punchline without a setup, right here, Paul is letting us know, you need context to understand everything I'm about to say. 
if you don't have context for what I'm about to say, then it's really not going to make that much sense, kind of like that joke made no sense. So what is the context for everything he's about to say? What are these things that he's referencing? Well, it would be everything we've looked at the last couple of weeks, and it would be everything that's really included from chapter 1 to chapter 7. Here's a couple of highlights from chapter 1 to chapter 7 and what we've studied the last couple of weeks. The first one is this. The gospel is absolutely for everyone, for Jews, for Gentile, doesn't matter, your race, your background, your economic status, the gospel is for everyone. Another high-level thing that you need to understand is that the bondage of sin has been shattered by Jesus' death and his resurrection, and that we, as Jesus' followers, are called to surrender and follow him in order to live a spirit-empowered life. And that spirit-empowered life is the only way we're going to make it through the difficulties that we face in our lives. So Paul's saying, what do we say to those things? you got to have that in mind for this next part we're going to look at today. And so with that foundation, let's look at the rest of this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whose God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? (laughs) No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. This passage makes me think of a courtroom setting, and it actually makes me think of some time I spent in Rosendale. Anybody ever been to Rosendale? Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's about 40 miles from here. Um, Anybody ever seen this t-shirt about Rosendale? Rosendale, just a ticket? Yeah, if you don't know, Rosendale is pretty famous for being a speed trap, and they issue a lot of tickets. And my wife and I were on a road trip, and we were making our way back from Kansas or Arkansas, and I know this about Rosendale, so I'm always like, lock the cruise control, 25 miles an hour. I'm going to creep real slow because I know what I need to do. So we're making our way back. It's cold. It's late. I've driven 10 hours. I'm ready to get home. But cruise control is locked. We make our way through town. It's super busy. Lots of cars behind us. Finally make it through, and I see that 55-mile-an-hour sign, and I'm like, great. So I start to accelerate and make my way through, and I get going a little while, and all of a sudden I see lights behind me, and I'm like, oh, honey, somebody wasn't paying attention. They're going to get a speeding ticket, and all of a sudden I see that car pull over and this car pull over, and the cop car is still coming. I'm like, no way. Sure enough, I get pulled over. Cop comes up, and he's like, you know what I pulled you over for? I'm like, no, I had my cruise locked. He's like, well, I caught you for speeding. I'm like, can I see the radar gun? Nope. I'm not going to show you the radar gun, but I'm going to give you a ticket. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I had my cruise control on. And he goes, well, you might have, but about 200 yards before the 55-mile-an-hour sound, you excel, or 55-mile-an-hour uh, sign, you accelerated, and I clocked you right before the sign, so you were speeding. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's the law. That's the way it works. And so you know what I did? I went to court. I showed up at court. And I got there because I got the ticket, and I sat across from my accuser, who was the cop, and he said, yeah, Gary, uh, I clocked you at this, and I pleaded my case with the judge and asked for a little mercy and that they would reduce the ticket and all that, and 
you know, it worked out all right. But you know what this scripture reminds and, and sheds a different light on that experience, what it might have been like if Jesus had been my defense attorney and I was being tried for what I was being accused of, of my sin and my condemnation. It's a different picture. It would have felt very different for me to stand across from the enemy who wants to accuse me and for Jesus to go, you know what, uh, Gary, I'm, I'm going to pay your ticket and I'm going to ask the judge to pronounce you not guilty and expunge it from your record so your insurance rates don't go up. Oh, and by the way, I'm also the judge. That's what the gospel is, that Jesus stands. And when Paul says in this passage, uh, who accuses you? Well, we can all answer that. Our own conscience, our own sin, our mistakes, the people around us, those are the things that condemn us or, or, or want to accuse us. But he says, hey, God's for you, and it's God who actually justifies you. Well, who's the one who condemns you? I got 99 problems, Romans 8 and 1. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because the law, the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation through Christ because of the sacrifice that he made. So when it comes to our guilt, when it comes to our shame, when it comes to our condemnation, Jesus, as one with the Father, is going to bat and interceding for you on your behalf. And if there's anybody you want to stand in your corner to go to bat on your behalf, it's going to be Jesus, the perfect Son of God, right? Jesus, Paul saying, became what we were, which is guilty, so that we could become what he is, which is seen as righteous made holy and perfect because of him. That's justification. That's what we talked about a week or two ago. So the reality of our lives is this. When it comes to the gospel, what Paul's saying is, Gary, you're guilty, but he pronounces you not guilty. So you're not cocky because you know you're not done. You're guilty. You make the mistakes, but I forgive you and I pronounce you as not guilty, so don't be cocky because you're not done. The gospel reminds us that there is no room for swagger in the kingdom of God. There's no chest thumping as a Jesus follower because we are so nailing it in our lives. Like, I barely even need the cross. Bob and Sue, they might need the cross, but I'm pretty much crushing this thing. Paul, my friends, who was a way better Christian than I'm ever going to be, you know what he labeled himself as? He said, you know what my title is? Chief Sinner. This dude was a baller. He wrote most of your New Testament. He's like, I'm Chief Sinner. I'm MVP. And I'm like, if that's who you are, then where does that leave me? Paul realized that we are absolutely incapable, incapable of following and living for Christ in our own strength. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, he says, look, there's nothing good in my flesh. I know this about me. Yet there is a God who loves and sees us despite the screw-ups that we are, and he declares us not guilty because of Jesus. And my friends, that should honestly humble us, and it should also catapult us in worship and adoration to a God who feels and sees and loves the way 
he loves. And, and he pours out his grace and mercy towards us. And he reminds us that we're not done and that he's still sanctifying and working for us and in us. It's said this way in 2 Peter 4.13 that his divine power, it gives us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and his goodness, that his power is actually what's at work in us to help us live this godly life. And then life becomes the training ground for spirit-filled living with a risen Savior who doesn't gasp and shake his head when you make the mistake that you made three years ago or this morning. Paul says, now, this God that you love, that you serve, he actually intercedes on your behalf and makes a way for you. Let's keep going. We're going to talk about the next passage of Scripture. How many of you guys have ever heard of the company Blue Ribbon Sports? Anybody? Blue Ribbon Sports is a company that was founded in 1964. But I bet you know the company by a different name because they changed their name in 1971. This company is massive. To give you an idea of the scope of this company, this is how much money they made in 2022. Last year, they made $47.6 billion. To give that number some context, $47.6 billion breaks down to making over $5 million, $5 million every hour, 365 days a year. Nike is the name of the company that got changed to. Nike makes huge amounts of money, and the name Nike is actually a name, if you don't know this, that was lifted from Greek mythology. Greek mythology was heavily embedded in the culture of Rome. And as I said, religion was like a multiple-choice answer with multiple deities. I think uh, history says there were like 67, some Greek gods, not even counting all the hundreds of demigods. So Roman culture was obsessed with different, uh, different types of deities, and Nike was one of those deities. Nike uh, means goddess of victory, Nike means goddess of victory, and these deities were worshipped because the, the, the Roman culture was obsessed with athletics, like we talked about athletics. They had the gladiators, they had wrestling, they had running, they had all these sports. And so this deity of Nike was turned into statues like this that you'll see all through Rome. You'll see these in museums around the country. And anytime you saw this goddess, this goddess in Rome was worshipped as soldiers would go into battle, as athletes they would sacrifice to this God and burn incense to her in order to be granted victory in the competition that they were going to have. And all through the Roman Empire, the cities and these statues were seen with her foot on the globe just to signify that the Roman Empire is the victor and the conqueror over the entire world. To this day, the image of the goddess Nike is embossed even on Olympic medals like this to indicate victory is given to the uh, athletes who are going to be competing in the Olympics. Well, why are you telling me this, Gary? It's because Paul is well aware of Greek mythology because he walks past it every day. It's a part of his culture and how pervasive it is. And he's about to drop some knowledge in this next passage of Scripture on something that's super common knowledge to them. So let's pick it up at verse 35. He says... Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and he quotes, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered the sheep to be slaughtered. Then he goes on, no. And all of these things, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and all of these things we are, and here's the phrase, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's what's interesting. The Greek word for conqueror is the same word derived from the Greek for the goddess Nike. The same statues that Paul's audience is walking by every day that they're interacting with, that many people in their, in their society are worshiping and praying to for victory, Paul is saying that those who are in Christ, you are more than what this goddess stands for or could try to ever deliver. It's like Paul purposely points to that and says, the goddess of Nike is child's play compared to the God that you serve and what he will do in and through you. It's a strange phrase to me. What does it mean? Like, how, Here's the question. How can you be more than a conqueror? What does more than a conqueror mean? Because I'm pretty sure when I think of conqueror, that's like top of the food chain. That's somebody who's kicking butt and taking names. That's somebody who is like, dominating, right? So how could Paul say through Christ you're made more than a conqueror? Well, one way to possibly consider this is to look at how Rome dominated the world. How would they conquer? One of the ways they would conquer is they would go into a land and they would crush their enemies. And you know what they would do? They would take the land. Another form of domination is they would go into a place, they would conquer the enemy, they would take their land, and then they would take all the resources in the land. They would plunder the gold, the silver, any resources that they want. But one of the ultimate ways Rome would crush their enemies is they would come in, they would take their land, they would take all the resources and plunder all the things that they want. But the ultimate was they would take those people who they had just conquered and go, you're going to come back with us and you're going to be my slave and you're going to serve me. It's like Rome, when they really wanted to show off, they would come in, crush you, and be like, not only did we just whoop you and beat you, now you're going you're gonna to serve us. You're going to become our slave. Paul lists seven things that want to separate us from God's love. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. And perhaps to be more than a conqueror, maybe Paul is actually saying those very enemies that you're facing, they're actually not going to separate you from his love. In fact, through Christ, these seven things are actually going to be used to serve you and to serve your good. Listen to me. The circumstances that want to kill your faith, to destroy your family and provoke your fears, the thing that came to take you out will eventually trumpet how God took you through because that's how good he is. And that to be more than a conqueror means that those things that were conquered by the cross, Jesus somehow redemptively can use them to serve you in your journey as you faithfully surrender and follow him. That's how you become more than a conqueror. 
Not because you're smart and you're resourceful and you're strong, but it's through Christ and because of Christ that the very enemies you face can be flipped on their head and used by him to serve your growth, serve your refinement, what we call sanctification, so that you can look more and more like Jesus and ultimately through it, he gets glory. That's why a few verses before this, he says, hey, you know what? All things work together for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. You're a Jesus follower. You've been called. Everything that you ever face in those seven categories that want to separate you from his love are going to be used. They're going to be made slaves to serve his purposes to build Jesus and his heart inside of you. That, my friends, is good news. So when you look at your life and you go, well, what's going on in my world? What's going on in my heart? You can know that if you're, if, you're, if you're in Christ and you can just look a little bit further down the road past those circumstances, you're going to see a redeemer, a never defeated father who somehow will sustain, strengthen, empower, and carry you no matter how bad it is. And he is exponentially capable and greater than those things that want to separate you. In fact, he'll use those things to enable you to be more than a conqueror. But don't get it twisted. The Christian life is not all rainbows and cotton candy. Did you, did you catch the little ditty where Paul quotes? Before he says, here's the things that want to separate you and you're more than a conqueror, he, he throws this odd quote in where he says, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. That's actually lifted from Psalm 44. It's Paul's little nod to tell you and remind you that, hey, ultimately, you're going to win. God will use those things for your good because he already won. But just so you know, guys, there should be nothing strange or unexpected about suffering and facing difficulty in the Christian walk. And Paul is not speaking from some like hypothetical perch of theory. He's speaking firsthand. Because if you look at Paul's life, you look at what he went through, you look at his resume in 2 Corinthians where he's like, bro, I've been shipwrecked five times. I've been jailed more times than I can count on. I've been beaten and left for dead. The 39 slashes that Jesus took, I took those things five times. I've been uh, shipwrecked, naked, homeless. I've been starved. Yet in all these things that I face, A, his grace has been sufficient for me. And his love has allowed me to know that I'm never going to be defeated because he's making me more than a conqueror because his grace is going to sustain me through it all. Paul had experienced in profound ways a love that was greater than whatever was going to come against him. So while we are told that we're to be more than conquerors, it isn't cute. It's gritty. It's a battle-worn truth. It's a badge that you wear that says, no matter what, you will not leave me, and you are going to use whatever I'm going to face. I can bank on that. And you know what the enemy is banking on? The, the enemy of your soul is banking on you getting this wrong. He is banking on fear distracting you and crippling you. He's banking on discouragement when life gets hard to erode your faith and confidence in who he is. 
He's, he's banking on your problems and your frustrations and the things that maybe you walked in here with that are just weighing your heart down. He's banking on those things, pulling your focus away from loving Jesus and being loved by him. But John 10, 27, Jesus speaking, he says, you know what? My sheep, my sheep know my voice. I give them eternal life and no one is gonna snatch them from my hand. So may that settle inside you today and encourage your heart a little bit. But Paul's not done talking about this love, this love that drives out fear. He actually drives a stake down and he wraps up the chapter in verse 38 by saying these things. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Quick question when you survey your life and what you're carrying right now. Is there anything in your life that is not covered under the umbrella of what he just talked about? Paul said in the verse before we looked at that we are more than conquerors through his love. And now he's doubling down and saying, the very love that makes you more than a conqueror you can never be separated from. Do you get the sandwich of what that means for you? That you're going to be made more than a conqueror no matter what you face, and you can't ever even be separated from that love. So you are guaranteed as you follow Jesus that he's going to be with you and he's going to be on the move. But it begs the question when it comes to our lives, then why, why don't I feel that way? Right? Why do I feel so disconnected? Why do I feel like I'm defeated? Like I'm just being kicked and I'm beat down and I don't feel any empowerment. I don't feel any overcoming and conquering. And I certainly feel disconnected from God's love. I can't, I can't pretend to answer that question for you, but I trust that the Holy Spirit can speak to you about that today. What I can tell you is there are two things for me personally that I have battled my whole life and I probably will battle until I am pushing up daisies. These are the things that battle and want to keep me from experiencing the depth of his love. And I know they sound so basic and so elementary, but for me and my walk, it's subtle and it's super destructive. Here's what it is. The first one is this. When I view what happens to me as the indicator of God's love for me. When I do that, I, I, get, it, I get it wrong. See, my circumstances should not become the grid by which I judge the steadfastness of his love for me. Because when you do that, you stand on dangerous ground, right? Because when life is good... Oh, God is good. But when life is bad and it goes south and it goes sideways, then I go, hmm, God's love has gone south. It's sideways. He doesn't care about me. He's not paying attention to what's happening to me. That's the first thing. The second thing for me is this. When I make my performance the gatekeeper for whether I can receive God's love, when I do that, 
the enemy uses that to get me. Because my performance cannot be the gatekeeper for determining my worthiness of his love. Because I will take myself away from being able to receive his love if I base it just on my performance. Our circumstances lie to us about his steadfast love. And my performance lies to us about my worthiness to receive his love. Let let me explain it to you a, a, a different way. We used to, uh, when I was a kid, we would, we would play this little game. Maybe y'all do this. Maybe you still do this. I'm not judging you. This is a judgment-free zone. But we used to play this game. If I had a crush on somebody, I'd be like, she loves me? She loves me not. She loves me? She loves me not. And the game was you'd get rid of all the power of the petals on the flower and wherever it landed it determined whether she loves me or she loves me not and what ends up happening is in my faith journey I found myself living by this exact same grid that's what I apply to my faith and it goes like this I went to church two weeks in a row he loves me I haven't opened my bible in two days he loves me not I got a job promotion. He loves me. I I didn't even get considered for the job I applied for. He loves me not. My marriage is going fantastic. He loves me. Ah, I yelled at my kids and blew it this morning. What an idiot. He loves me not. This goes on and on, and it becomes this roller coaster cycle where the enemy seeps in and he wants to destroy your connectedness and your ability to know and experience God's love. But the truth is that Paul is trying to drive into the hearts of his people to say, you got to get this. You want to be more than a conqueror? Then know that his love will make you that and you can never be separated. So what it actually plays out to be is, it plays out to be like this. I went to church two weeks in a row. He loves me. I haven't opened my Bible in two days. He loves me lots. Oh, I got a job promotion. He loves me. I didn't even get considered for the job, but he loves me lots. He's up to something. My marriage is going great. He loves me. Oh, I yelled at my kids this morning. God, forgive me. He still loves me lots. This is the shift Paul is saying, man, can you get this inside you? That your circumstances don't dictate his love, that your performance doesn't dictate his love and your worth. But we have to position ourselves in a way to experience and know it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and just quiet your heart for a moment? Maybe you're in this room and you've been a Jesus follower for a, for a long time. But like me, you're like, Gary, I, I identify with that, man. I battle these things. I've got some circumstances that have been telling me that God doesn't love me because it's been hard. It's been breaking my heart. And that's a tool the enemy has been trying to use. But today you're going, that's not what is true. 
and may your truth set me free. Maybe you today need to respond by simply saying, God, would you pour your Holy Spirit out inside of me that sheds your love abroad? Your Holy Spirit turns the light on and the connectedness so that I can receive your love today. Forgive me for thinking my performance is going to be the thing that's going to merit earning your love. Forgive me for making my circumstances the equation that tells me whether you love me or not, when the fact is your cross has demonstrated that. And you welcome me to you today. Maybe in your own words, you can voice a prayer like that to him. And maybe you're in this room and you have never placed your trust in Jesus. Like you may have heard about it before, but today maybe it hits a little bit different. And maybe this idea that uh, there's a God who sees you in your brokenness and your flaws and your mistakes. And he goes, man, I would die for you just the way you are because I love you the way you are. And I will meet you right where you are. And I will grow and work in you and refine you if you'll trust me, if you'll surrender, if you'll walk in a journey with me. Hey, if that's you this morning and you're watching online or you're in this room, I want to invite you. Would you just raise your hand so I can pray with you? I just want to see you so I know who I'm praying with. If you want to place your trust in Jesus today for the first time, you can just lift your hand. Yep, I see your hands. Yep, I see your hands. I see your hands. You can put those hands down. I want to invite you, if you're going to make this decision today, it's the best decision you could make. I want you to pray these words with me, not because they're magical words. What happens in your heart is because you are praying these words from your heart. But as a church family, we pray these words together out loud because we want you to know that you are not alone and we are all in need of this reminder that we need him. So would you just pray these words, Pathways, out loud with me? Say, dear Jesus, I come to you today and I ask you to forgive me. You see me as I am, yet you love me. You showed that through your cross. So today... I place my trust. I place my trust in you. And I commit to follow you. Will you help me to follow you? All the days of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, can we celebrate with our brothers and sisters, our friends today? Yeah.